we are at war. We are in a battle for the hearts and minds of people everywhere. My first year in seminary, 2009 fall, I had a professor come to class. He posed a rather interesting question. He said, are there demons in this room right now? You could have heard a pin drop. I never had really contemplated such a question before. He said, suppose there are, then are there angels also in this room right now? His point was this, that at any given moment, There are countless number of things happening both in and around us at any given time. The problem that happens for the Christian is we often find ourselves ill-equipped and ill-prepared because in not seeing these things, often in a tangible way, we are lulled into a false sense of security. It is this way of thinking that often leads to ill-equipped and ill-prepared Christians everywhere. The battlefields of history hold the ancient tombs of well-intentioned, but even so ill-equipped and ill-prepared soldiers At the famous Battle of Little Bighorn, George Armstrong Custer recklessly led his man against a much larger force of Sioux and Cheyenne warriors. In the ensuing battle, he and all 210 men under his command were killed. Make no mistake, we are at war. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, 3 to 5, Paul continues this line of thinking. He has a few things to say about this war that we are in. Now to the text. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 3. He says, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. So out of the gate, Paul acknowledges that we walk, that he walks according to the flesh. What you need to know is that one of the overarching themes of 2 Corinthians is that many of the people at Corinth are challenging his apostolic authority. And so, they have been saying a lot of things about Paul, believing a lot of things about Paul that are not true. That he is corrupt, that he is immoral, that he is driven by lust, by greed, out for just money. 
He's prideful. And, and they're saying these things and they're believing these things that they're saying. And so Paul, one verse earlier, says, listen, some of you suspect us of walking according to the flesh. And in verse 3 he says, for though we walk in the flesh. You say, that's kind of an interesting thing that he says. So they're accusing him of walking according to the flesh. And then he announces in verse 3 that he is walking according to the flesh. It's kind of like a, a kind of a backhanded, kind of sarcastic remark. They're accusing him of walking according to the flesh. He says, yep, because... How else am I supposed to walk? According to like an animal? Like, of course I'd walk according to the flesh because I'm a man, after all. There's no other way for me to walk but with the legs that I have. And then he goes on to say this, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. And yet the implication is, is that we are waging war. We're not waging war according to the flesh, but... Well, we are waging war. We are in a battle. In fact, growing up, there was a there was a childhood song that I I'd like to sing. I thought it was cool um, because it had to do with like army stuff and cool hand motions. This thing, the songs I'm in the Lord Army. Some of you, you know, I'm. I'll just, it goes something like this. I may never march in the infantry, ride in the cavalry, shoot the artillery. I may never fly over the enemy, but I'm in the Lord's army. Yes, sir. I'm in the Lord's army. Yes, sir. I'm in the Lord's army. Yes, sir. And I may never march in the infantry, ride in the cavalry. I may never fly over the enemy, but I'm in the Lord's army. Yes, sir. Some of you guys. Maybe that'll be my audition song for the band tonight. I want blind auditions, though, like the voice. Some of you guys may remember that song. Some of you guys are like, I don't ever want to remember that song now. So, I love that song. And little did I know when I was younger, there were significant biblical implications from that song that I discovered when I was preparing this text. This is a sermon I've never preached at Lynchburg City Church, the one I am familiar with. I've had the opportunity to preach essentially a mini version of this sermon twice a year at LFL. But in preparing for this, he says, for though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. So we are waging war. It's just not in the traditional way that you might think of. In fact, this word in the original language, war, has a meaning of to engage in battle or to serve as a soldier. That word war that he uses in 10.3, it has the meaning to engage in battle or to serve as a soldier, never realized the biblical significance and implications of that, that song. I just liked it because it was cool. But there's a lot of truth to that. We are at war. We are. 
In fact, Paul further illustrates this point in the 6th chapter of the book of Ephesians, in the 12th verse, when he says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but... So we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but he's going to say we do wrestle against something. But we do wrestle against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. These demonic powers that are all around us, including in the unseen realm. A spiritual war, however, cannot be fought with fleshly weapons. Fleshly weapons are useless when it comes to the spiritual battle. Swords, shields, arrows, bows, spears. They're combat ineffective, you might say. And so, Paul goes on to acknowledge that we are at war, but it's not a war in the traditional sense. And then he says this, verse 4, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they have divine power to destroy strongholds. So we are at war, not a traditional war. We've got weapons, but not traditional type weapons. But those weapons are powerful. In fact, they have divine power. And they have divine power to tear down strongholds. We... Oftentimes make the mistake of seeing words in the Bible and then associating modern day meanings to them and then reinserting them back into the text. It's called eisegesis. We don't want to do that. We want to exegete the text, not eisegete, not put our own meaning into it. We exegete, we literally pull the truth out of the text. And so people throw around like, oh man, got a stronghold in your life. Oh, got a strong. So you hear like things. You watch a video clip like what Christians say. I'm sure something with strongholds will be brought up in it because it's just, it's something common that works its way into our vocabulary. But what, of course, what we're chasing after whenever we read the Bible is, well, what did Paul mean when he said that? And what, and how would the original audience have understood that? Well, this term stronghold would have been a term that was very common with any New Testament reader. In general, within the first century, even so, that much more with the Corinthians, who he's writing this letter to, Corinth, like most other major Greek cities, had an Acropolis. An Acropolis was this essentially strong city, this maybe fortified city, or part of the city would be fortified or made strong. And it would usually be located on a mountain, near a mountain, on a hill, near a hill, taking advantage of the natural terrain that often dictates the course of the battle. Most people know that if you're going to be, if you're going to come under attack, finding the higher ground is more suitable. If you have the higher ground, that means the enemy is going to get tired running up the high ground to attack you. Not only that, but you're able to shoot projectiles at them to go more distance than if you were shooting up the hill. So these, this Acropolis, these strongholds would be placed there. In fact, 
Corinth had a stronghold. So as soon as Paul says and makes this reference to a stronghold, the Corinthians would have not needed me like now to break this down whatsoever. They would have immediately resonated. Oh yeah, the, the stronghold. Yeah, we, we know exactly what you're talking about. The, the Acropolis, the strong part or the, the defendable part of the city. The word stronghold was also used in extra-biblical Greek to refer to a prison. And when you think about the implications of an attacking army and they come back to their stronghold to defend themselves, people under siege in a stronghold were essentially imprisoned there by the attacking forces. Now Paul has just stated a couple things. He says, we're at war, not a traditional war. We've got weapons, not traditional weapons. But the weapons are powerful, divinely empowered to what? Destroy strongholds. Well... It wouldn't make any sense if he's referring to a literal stronghold. Like up to this point, he's been using metaphor and simile, making comparisons to help the people resonate with the very topic that he's dealing with. So, what is this stronghold? He's painted this word picture for them. They're very familiar with that part of the city in Corinth. But what does he mean by it? Well, we keep reading to find the answer. For... The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Verse 5, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Maybe you caught it there, what strongholds are. I'll read it again. We destroy arguments, arguments, and every lofty opinion, opinions, opinions, Race against the knowledge of God and take every thought, thought, thought. We take it captive to obey Christ. Strongholds, in the sense that Paul is meaning them, is referring to arguments, opinions, and thoughts. Arguments, opinions, and thoughts. Strongholds are incorrect ways of thinking and incorrect behavior. Strongholds are incorrect thinking and incorrect behavior. They ultimately, strongholds are the lies that we believe. Now remember what's happening. Many of the people in Corinth are making crazy, absurd accusations of Paul, saying, you walk according to flesh. They're accusing him of things. They're challenging his apostolic authority, saying that he is things that he's not. And they are not only doing that, but... They are believing some of these accusations that they're saying. Strongholds are incorrect ways of thinking and behavior. They are the lies that we believe. And yet, when it comes to spiritual warfare, we often find ourselves ill-equipped and ill-prepared because we do not recognize or discern the attacks of the enemy. There's a scene from a movie called Black Hawk Down where an army ranger is sitting up in a gun turret of a Humvee. They're in Mogadishu, Somalia, and he's up there and there's a a ping, a crack, a wisp, a ping, a crack, a wisp. And clearly he's being attacked. But that's, that army ranger in that moment is, is, is really having a hard time understanding and processing what is actually happening. So instead of slinging some lead and returning fire, he looks down at one of the officers and he says, 
Sir, they're, they're shooting at us. And the officer responds back, for those of you who have seen the movie, shoot back. Shoot back. We find ourselves often ill-equipped and ill-prepared when it comes to aspects of spiritual warfare because we are not thinking of things how they ought to be. We are looking and basing our understanding of spiritual warfare based off of a TV show or a movie. It's a major problem within the American Disneyland version that we call Christianity because we're biblically illiterate. Because churches today are so entertainment-focused and driven. I don't care whether I really go over the Bible. I care about entertaining you, that you have a good time, so that you come back, and so on and so forth. So you go to church, and they'll read a Bible verse, and all right, now we read that, let me tell you a bunch of stories. Story time with Joe. No. And so we're not equipped. We're not prepared to recognize these things for what they are. Now, do crazy things happen? Yeah, if... Pastor Dane, he could tell you some crazy stories when he's gone to India on trips. One of my friends, when I was a first or second year seminary student, she called me up, and and she's not a a crazy person whatsoever, because as soon as I say this story, it sounds crazy. But she said, Joe, so please don't think I'm crazy. I'm like, I don't think you're crazy. She's like, okay. I went to high school with this girl. She came to Liberty, so. She says, I'm hearing, like, something or someone, like, breathing in my room. So what do you mean? She's like, like, I said, is there by chance someone or something in your room? And she said, no. Do things like that happen? Yeah. Things like that do happen. But do they happen like that the majority of the time? No, they don't. And because of that, we oftentimes, like the army ranger, we do not process that we are under attack in the moments that we're under attack. When I was a freshman at Liberty, it was the fall of 05. Some of you crunching the math. I'm a freshman at Liberty, it's the fall of 05, and... I had a speech 101 class. There was maybe 25 people in it. Now I gotta ask. Is, are there not 25 people in classes today? Um. <laughs> I had about 20, 25 people in my speech 101 class. I know they do things differently. It was the day we were giving the informative speeches, and I don't remember what my speech was on. I don't remember what anyone else's speech was on, but I remember what my friend Jessica's speech was on. She gave a speech on the topic of rape and sexual assault. And I remember it was kind of intense. And as she continued to give her speech, I think every single person in the class began to feel more and more uncomfortable. And then at the end of the speech, she told a very personal story how one day when she was leaving school two years earlier, Four guys that she had never seen before grabbed her, threw her to the ground, and they held her down, and they each took turns having sex with her. She and I both graduated from Liberty in 2009. She moved back out west. 
got engaged to a guy named Andrew and called me up. I, thought I was in first or second year seminary. We catching up on the phone, asked her how things were going. She said, things weren't going so well. I said, well, what's happened? She's like, well, two weeks ago I was, I could hear a voice starting to crack. She says, I was leaving work, I was on a lunch break, and some man grabbed me, pulled me around the corner, held a knife to my throat, and then proceeded to have sex with me. And she said, Joe, I, I don't think I can marry Andrew. And she said, I, I don't, I don't think I can get married. I said, well, how is Andrew doing? And she said, he, uh, he's been very great, very, very, very awesome through this whole thing. And she said, but I, I don't think that I deserve someone like him. I think he deserves someone way better than me. And, you know, she's like, I don't even know, like, how someone could consider someone like me, like, a virgin after all, after the things that I've been exposed to. And she began to tell me just how she was feeling, the things that she was thinking, how she felt like she was worthless, how she felt like she had no value, how she felt like just dirty and gross, and that she didn't want to marry Andrew because she wanted him to marry someone else, someone better. And in that moment... Um, I knew exactly what had been happening. In that moment, I was that army ranger up on that gun turret, and I, I, re- I knew exactly, like, I'm hearing the ping, the cracks, like, we are in a battle in that moment. I already preached this sermon a few times, so I'd been somewhat educated, and I knew right there, like, I had to go to battle for her. And I said, Jessica... I feel like there's a lot of spiritual warfare happening right now. And I love you, but you're believing some things that are not true. And I don't want you to believe those things because those things are not from God. Those things are not from God. Those things are from our great enemy and adversary. And right then and there, I'm like, what you need to know is that God loves you. And I'm, I'm going with Ephesians 1, 3 to 6, just boom, right there. Like, in love, He predestined you for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace. And oh, by the way, He did this before there was a universe. Like, Jessica, He had you in mind. He had you in mind long ago before he created the world that you were going to be his daughter. That I'm going to adopt you, that I love you, and nothing's going to change that. It's so hard because in those moments, oh, I, I can't imagine what that's like. And so I'm, I'm, I am, I am pleading with her to reject these thoughts. I'm pleading with her. Those are lies. These are true things. These are true statements. Jess. You are not defined by your past. You are not defined by the mistakes you've made. You're not defined even by your circumstances. Circumstances come and go. (coughs) The cross is forever and ever and ever. Circumstances change. The cross stays the same. So Jessica... 
I said, God loves you and nothing can separate you from that love. For I am sure of this, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation can separate us from the love of God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Oh, I'm thankful for those truths. Because those moments are so hard. I'm thankful for those those truths that are just laid in bedrock, that are firm, that you can take that to the bank. In those moments when the enemy lies and accuses you and attacks you, that's not true. That's not true. That's not true. Those things aren't true. What's true? Ephesians 1, 3 to 6. What's true? Uh, Romans 8. I think that was 24 to 30 that I quoted you, or 26 to 30. Those things are true. And so, we jump back to the text. He says, we're at war, not a traditional war. We've got weapons, not traditional weapons, but they're powerful weapons, divinely empowered weapons to do something, to destroy strongholds. Spiritual warfare is not mainly about battling demons. It's mainly a battle for the minds of people who are captive to lies that are exalted in opposition to God and His Word. That's what spiritual warfare is mainly about. I'm not saying that crazy stuff doesn't happen. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that we oftentimes miss the normal stuff that happens because we're looking for all the big ticket items like the chair levitating off the ground or hearing the voices. We normally miss when it happens on a daily basis. The objective of the battle that we're in The goal of the battle that we're in, of this warfare, is to change how we think. And so we take every thought captive. Every false thought the devil just kind of pushes our way. Every lying thought, every accusatory thought. And you you know what they are. When you start, when you start having those moments and you're just like, man, I just suck. I feel worthless, like no one's ever going to love me. No one's going to forgive me for what happened or understand what happened. No one. No one's ever going to go to war, make war. And so the proper the proper weapon is necessary in this war that we are waging to assault these strongholds of false religions, to assault these strongholds of false ideas and opinions and beliefs and philosophy, there is one weapon that will suffice, and that is the truth. How do you want to fight lies? With the truth. It's usually a good idea. If you got lies you're dealing with, we'll just pour a bunch of truth on that. That's, that's the best way to combat lies is with the truth. There is only one offensive weapon in the Christian soldier's armor. And that is according to Ephesians 6.17, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Spiritual warfare is an ideological conflict fought in the mind by assaulting the proud fortresses of lies and ideas that have built themselves up against the truth. 
And so we take every thought captive. To, to take the thought captive, in the original language, it has the idea of literally to take captive with a spear. There's, there's a little imagery there in this word, this, in this phrase that's being used. It says take, taking captive or take captive. In the original language, it's just one word. The key, the key to being successful in spiritual warfare is becoming proficient at wielding the sword of the word of God against lies that we and people believe. I always tell people, oftentimes, you know, people, I, I know sometimes it's a struggle to make it to church. Man, I don't really feel like going tonight. Um, I usually tell people, the moments that you're feeling that, just this overwhelming urge, like, I just don't want to go to church tonight. Those are usually the moments you need to be there more than ever. And I know that you battle with that. I know that you have friends that battle with that. I know. I know what happens. So the key to being successful in spiritual warfare is becoming proficient in wielding the sword, which is the word of God against the lies that we believe. It is impossible to fight air without knowing the truth. It's impossible to fight against air without knowing the truth. One of the reasons we are so ill-equipped and ill-prepared is not only that we fail to recognize spiritual warfare and attacks of the enemy for what they are, but we are not proficient in wielding our weapon. Because even if we're there in the turret, like the army ranger, even if we're there and we recognize it, oh, okay, having a friend, they're telling you all these things, they're believing, they're feeling, like, oh, I gotta go to war. Okay, I'm pretty sure that's not true. I, oh, it's a really good Bible verse. And so we go, we reach for our weapon, we reach for our sword, we're like, we can see the enemy, we're going. Uh, trying to pull our, our sword out. Okay, if I, maybe I can, uh, okay. Whoa, got it. And we, uh, are not proficient in wielding it because we never take it out. We never train with the sword. If, uh, if the only time that you look at this or examine this is on Sundays, you will be ill-equipped, ill-prepared. Um, you will get lit up. You'll get lit up. Uh, you need to be in the Word every day. If you're not memorizing Scripture, you need to be memorizing Scripture. You need to get proficient Christians of wielding this weapon, this sword, through the working of the Holy Spirit, through prayer. You need to get familiar with this weapon to be able to effectively combat lies. You need to do that. My dad, he's not a believer. He oftentimes teased me. In the army... For centuries, training is vital. Training is vital. That's one of the reasons I'm hitting my treadmill three days a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, like that we are battle ready to go if the phone rings. It's not, oh man, I gotta get ready for a PT test. It's, we're ready to go now. My dad sometimes jokes with me. He's like, you know, you can't just say, you know, you're out there on the battlefield. You know, you get, you get winded walking up like one flight of stair. 
Okay, Mr. Mr. Al-Qaeda, Mr. ISIS, can I just catch my breath right now? You laugh, right? That's crazy. Like, asking Mr. Al-Qaeda, Mr. ISIS, like, time out, I gotta catch my breath. Like, Satan doesn't take a day off. There's no time out, Satan, okay? There's not that, but yet we live our lives as if we can call a time out, and he's gonna fight nicely. Okay, he won't attack me today. He won't lie to me today. He won't accuse me today. So I mean, I didn't get. I don't, I don't want to get in the by the word today, or you know, the next couple of days. I'm, I'm really busy. I love the Martin Luther quote when it comes to prayer, Bible reading. I think it had to do with prayer, but still a great spiritual discipline. He say, "I try to pray one to two hours a day, and then days when I'm really busy, you know, with intramural sports and big tests and exams. On those days, I pray three hours." Modern day paraphrase, but that's what he'd say. He'd say, "I normally pray one to two hours a day, and then days when I'm really, really busy, I pray three. But the problem is, is we don't recognize today the stakes. The stakes are high. The battle is real. The battle is real. And it is for hearts and minds of people everywhere. That's part of the problem with the American church today is it's all about got to entertain them, got to keep them coming. So I'm going to do this crazy show, stand-up comedy routine, little Bible, that's it. I'll tell you what, my friend Jessica didn't need to be entertained in that moment. Like, she needed truth! She needed Bible in that moment! In that moment, when she's just a wreck and her world is turned upside down, she needs Bible! She needs the truth of God's Word, not some funny story that I've got to tell you. That has nothing to do with the Bible. I, I get so, so mad. I go to churches and I, 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 like we spend a minute in the Bible. Like forget like equipping the people of God. We spend like a minute there. All right, I'm just going to tell you stories. And it may or may not have to do with the Bible verse at all. I just get so mad because there's Jessicas all over this place that are hurting people. And they don't need a funny antidote. They need God's word. So my job as pastor is to to make you aware of this, that you're well-equipped, that you're well-prepared, that you're ready to do battle. We are at war, church. We need to know God's Word and proclaim those truths and even preach them to ourselves in those moments when we feel and come under attack. We need to be able to wield our weapon well. We love you, Jesus. And I, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if there's people in here right now that they really needed to hear this because they've been coming under attack and, and, and they've just been believing these lies of the enemy about them or who they are or their identity or their self-worth or their value or whatever it may be or believing lies about other people. And so Jesus, I know, I know that First John 4, 1 says the greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. We have a powerful adversary, but you're way more powerful than he is. And so I ask that you would protect the people in here tonight, that they would be well equipped, that way they would be well prepared, that they would be able to wield the weapon that you've given us 
through prayer and the Holy Spirit, effectively, that we would tear down strongholds, perhaps in our own lives, things that we've been been believing or ideas that we've had that just aren't true, or perhaps the opportunity to do so and set other people free. Give us an urgency. Help us to battle well, God. Help us to break every chain, every lie, every false idea or philosophy, to break every chain that has been propagated against the truth of who you are, Jesus. So I pray with the early church father, St. Augustine, Lord, command what you will and give what you command. Lord, command what you will and give what you command. Enable us to do the things you've asked us to do. God, give us a hunger for your word, to eat it up, to know it well, to battle hard, to battle long. Amen.